Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew. We'll begin in chapter 19. We're going to read back a few verses from last week's text to kind of set the context here. In Matthew chapter 19, the Holy Scriptures read, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again though in the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father, we come before a parable that is quite easy to misunderstand. So, Father, we ask for clarity. I pray that through the preaching of the word, the foolishness of preaching as it's called, that you would bring glory to your name, that you would bless your people, that my words would be yours as revealed in your written word. Your word is perfect. Your word is holy. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So we ask that we would not look to the world around us, to the culture, to the popular voices that we hear, but that we would listen alone to your voice as coming through your word. And so, Father, we ask that today that your saints would be built up and edified for the work of the ministry. Father, we pray for the one here today who does not understand that the last will be first and the first will be last. For we find in that the very core of the gospel itself. 
And so, Father, I pray that for them, if they be here, today would be the day of salvation for them. That they would understand that the grace we receive is unmeasured. It's vast and free. It's a grace that knew us from eternity, as we just sang moments ago. And we praise you for that grace that goes out to all of us in an unmeasured way, which alone allows us to enter your kingdom, holy and righteous, just as your Son is, who imputes his righteousness to us by grace through faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The offer was simple. The offer was fair. The offer was pebbles for cucumbers. And every time one of the monkeys would collect pebbles and trade them in, in return, they would be given a cucumber. And in response to this deal, the monkeys were quite happy, at least at first. That is, until they sensed things had become unfair. Why did they think things had become unfair? Well, it's because though all of the monkeys were receiving cucumbers in return for the pebbles, one monkey was receiving grapes instead. See, the thing you need to know about monkeys is that, yes, they enjoy cucumbers, but they love grapes. And so when all of the monkeys turn to see that one monkey being given a much better deal, they became enraged by the injustice of it all. In fact, some of the monkeys were so angry that they began taking their cucumbers and chucking them back at the researchers in protest and disgust, though moments before that, they were loving the cucumbers. And why? Because when it came to fairness, what mattered to them was not just what they received, which was fair, but also what the others got as well. See, when it comes to fairness, church, we all have a passionate commitment to it. And like monkeys, our sense of fairness is often determined by what we see others around us receiving. For example, when researchers examine data from millions of flights trying to determine what factors would lead to air rage incidents, when science is called throwing an adult tantrum, they found that the single greatest determining factor was the existence of first-class cabins. In fact, they discovered that air rage incidents, or adult tantrums, uh, was four times more likely to occur when the plane had a first-class cabin. And why? Because when people looked over and they saw others with actual legroom, when they saw them sitting in chairs that were larger than a toddler's high chair, they suddenly saw their coach seating as being quite unfair, which caused them to grumble, complain, and throw their adult tantrum. Do you ever look at the people around you and think that things are unfair? Does it ever seem like God always seems to give you the short end of the stick while everybody else constantly is getting the long end? Does it seem like he's giving you cucumbers when everybody else gets grapes? If we're honest about it, I think we have to admit that sometimes we think God is treating us unfairly, that he's giving us cucumbers and we deserve grapes like all these other monkeys getting them. And so we begin to think that God is unfair because after all, when you look at some of the people around us, some of the Christians who seem to always be getting grapes in their lives, it doesn't seem like they deserve it, not any more than we would. 
In fact, some of them don't even deserve cucumbers in our minds. I mean, look at them. We know they barely read their Bible. They don't even know where the book of Genesis is, and that's the easy one to find. They miss church all the time. In fact, some of them haven't even been Christians for very long. And yet there they are, being blessed with grapes, with that great marriage that seems so happily ever after, with those well-behaved kids, with none of the health issues that you have, with a job that seems great and a life that seems to be and live happily ever after. And yet there you sit, munching on cucumbers without even ranch dressing to make it better. And in result of this, what do we tend to think? God's not fair. He's not fair. And if we're not careful, we can start to throw our cucumbers back at him in disgust at the injustice that we perceive to be happening. But here's the thing. The Bible tells us over and over that God is fair because he is. Even though it may not seem like he's fair, God is fair. And so even if your life seems to be getting cucumbers over and over and over, as the scripture tells us, that's actually more than fair. Because the kingdom's fairness, it's not based upon man's sensibilities, but what's it based upon? It's based upon God's sensibilities, which is totally fair. And that fairness is based upon three things, and here they are. The kingdom's fairness is based upon, first, generosity, not greed. Second, grace, not greatness. And finally, gratitude, not grumbling. And we're going to see this. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 19. So why don't you open your Bibles there? I'll give you a moment to find it. Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to jump into our passage this morning. I act like I'm giving you a minute, but really I want to fix this headset that's driving me nuts already. Everybody got it? Matthew chapter 19. Okay. In our passage this morning, what are we finding here? We're finding the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And I need to warn you, this parable is extremely easy to misunderstand. And I know that because I did that for a large part of this last week. Uh, You could say me and this parable were not friends. And the reason is because it's very easy to overthink it. And actually, all parables can be like that a little bit because what we can do is we can ignore the larger context and start looking into things that were never meant to be looked into. And so when we step back and we just look at the context of the parable, then and only then does it actually make sense what the parable's telling us. So what's the context? Well, as we saw last week, the context was this rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus, and what does he say? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice the question. He doesn't say, how do I receive it? He says, what must I do? It's a loaded question. And does Jesus stop him right there and say, whoa, 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 let me tell you, you're asking the wrong question. No, he doesn't do that. He responds to the rich young ruler's question in its own context. That's how he addresses him. And how does he address this young man's question on his own terms? Well, he does so by basically turning up the temperature on the law to a million degrees until this young man comes to realize there is simply no way at all for him to earn his place in the kingdom. And once he realizes, what does he do? It says he leaves in great sorrow. As Jesus does this, he then turns to his disciples and he says something that's very, very shocking. And we talked about this last week as well. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And what do the disciples say to this? They say, what? Who then can be saved? 
And Jesus responds, with man, nobody. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then in verse 27 of chapter 19, Peter says, okay, Jesus, the rich young ruler, he wouldn't give up all of his things and follow you, but we did. So what do we get? And does Jesus correct him right there and say, Peter, what a dumb question. No, he doesn't. He again answers Peter's question on his own terms. He says, you're going to get rewards. And does he say, Peter, you know what? Because of your question, which isn't a great question, you know what? You're going to get cucumbers. That's all you're going to get. No, he doesn't. He actually tells him he's getting something way better than grapes. And what does he tell Peter and the rest of the disciples they're going to receive? 12 thrones, which they're going to rule on in Jesus's millennial kingdom. And then he goes on in verse 29, and he says that every person, every disciple who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for his name's sake will not receive twofold, not tenfold, but how much? 100-fold. And then what's also added to that? What are they going to receive? Eternal life, which is way, way infinitely greater than that 100-fold gift, which they certainly will receive. In fact, Scripture tells us that anyone who gives even a cup of water in his name will find that when it comes to kingdom riches, they're going to be given basically a billion dollars in return for just a cup of water given to one of his disciples in his name. It's remarkable. And why? It's because God is not stingy. God is extremely generous. However, his generosity does not function in the way the world does. And Jesus makes this point clear by introducing to us the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. That makes sense so far? Three people, good. All right, let's get into this parable. First of all, this parable is wrapped around a literary device, and it's a literary device called an inclusio. Inclusio what? It's an inclusio. Look at chapter 19, verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. All right, now jump down to the end of the parable in chapter 20, verse 16, and what does it say? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. See, it's wrapped in in a reverse format, showing us uh, the same truth. It's, a, it's basically a sandwich between these two phrases, which are reversed, not only to emphasize the point that Jesus is making, but to show that what's between them directly relates to them. It's the thesis or the main point of the parable, we might say. And if you miss that main point, like I did for a while, you're going to turn this parable into something really silly, really fast. And so that expression, the first will be last and the last will be first first, which gets reversed at the end to the last will be first and the first will be last, is making the point about the gospel that Jesus has made several times now. And what's that point? It's simple. When it comes to God's fairness, it doesn't work the way that man's does. Not even close. And the parable gives us a picture of how God's fairness works. And the first thing it shows us is that it's extremely generous. The first sign of God's generosity is seen in how much the vineyard owner pays the 6 a.m. crew, right? So he goes out, he hires some workers, he brings them in at 6 a.m. to work, and what does he offer them for payment? One denarius. And if you know anything about denarius, which you probably don't, it's the same wage that a Roman soldier would make for one day. It wasn't, it wasn't going to make you extremely rich, but it was good pay. It wasn't bad money at all for unskilled manual labor. And these laborers certainly would have been excited about such a generous wage. 
And so then after being offered this wage, they happily agree to work in the master's vineyard, which typically lasted back then from about 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. It was about a 12-hour workday. Now, as the day goes on and the vineyard owner realizes that he needs more helpers, what does he do? Well, he goes out into the market at several points throughout the day and he hires more laborers. And, and back then, the way it worked would work is people would wait around the market and they would look for people coming in, different vineyard owners, different people who needed to hire labor, and they would basically try to get a job for the day to work for him. And so he goes not just at 6 a.m., but he goes back at 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., and then again at 5 p.m. and hires people for even just that final last one hour of work. Now for payment, what does he offer them? Doesn't say, does it? What it says is you go into the vineyard too and whatever is right, I will give to you. Now evidently this vineyard owner must have had a decent reputation because they don't even blink at that. They just say, oh, all right, sounds good. All right, we'll see what we get. They must have trusted that he was a generous vineyard owner and wasn't gonna rip him off. So the day, the day goes on then, 6 p.m. comes around, and finally then, in the, in the parable here, what happens? It's payday. And back then in Jesus' day, it was payday, not every other week. It was every day. It wasn't weekly. It wasn't biweekly. It was every single day. And the reason for that was because most people back then lived day by day, which meant if they didn't get paid, they likely weren't going to have enough to eat. And this actually fit back with the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, it commanded them to pay their laborers daily lest they be hungry and their grumbling bellies would cry out to the Lord and he would respond in anger to the injustice. So when evening came, the owner of the vineyard has them line up, all right? And our inclusio gets in place here. And what's the inclusio? What's that, that last will be first, the first will be last thing. He lines them up with the last workers being first and the first workers being last, and then he pays them. And notice what he does in verse nine. What does he pay the guys who worked for just one hour? He gives them the full denarius. This is extremely generous. This is the wage that he agreed to pay the 6 a.m. workers who worked the full 12-hour day in the hot sun. What generosity. He's a very generous vineyard owner. And upon seeing this, they, you know, because remember these one-hour workers got paid first and he goes down the line. And as he's going down the line, what do you think the 6 a.m. workers were likely thinking? Well, if he paid them that much, I wonder what he'll give us. Maybe his generosity will go well above and beyond that. But when he gets to them, what does he do? He pays them the denarius that he promised them, which causes them to do what? Start throwing their cucumbers back in disgust and anger. Because not only did they forget the original generosity that he offered them, they failed to realize that the fairness of this vineyard owner was based upon grace, not greatness. The vineyard owner's generosity, see, it was never based upon merit of the laborers, but his merit, which leads us to the second point here, because the kingdom's fairness, it's based upon generosity, not greed, but secondly, it's based upon grace, not greatness. Now, Jesus' point here, it's, it's pretty straightforward, which is simply that God's generosity, it's not based upon our works. It's based upon his grace, which is something that we often forget. Now think about this for a minute. Why is Jesus making this point here in this text? I think he's making this point because of his 12 6 a.m. workers, which he hired, the disciples, the 12 disciples, right? They, they were the first, they were the 6 a.m. The workers. They needed the reminder 
Over and over again throughout Matthew's gospel, they need this reminder. I mean, how many times have we seen the disciples forget that God's generosity is not based upon their greatness, but based upon his greatness? Over and over. You remember what happened when they came down from this amazing mountaintop experience called the Mount of Transfiguration? What happened? They got too big for their britches and they tried to cast out a demon without prayer and and it didn't work. They tried to do it in their own power. They started to think, oh, we're, we're Jesus's original 6 a.m. crew. Look at us. We're, you know, we're, we're the real workers here. And in response, Jesus tells them, no, that's not how this works. Any power you have is done in my name, not yours. Do you remember what happened when they saw other people casting out demons and doing ministry in Jesus's name? What did they do? Did they say, oh, great, good job. More laborers here to work. No. They get upset about it. They tell him, no, you can't do that. And they try to stop him. And Jesus is like, knock it off. I've commissioned them. Those who are not against us are for us. See, over and over again, we find Jesus having to teach his first disciples, the 12 disciples, the 6 a.m. crew, some, a, a very important truth, which is that the kingdom is an upside down kingdom. It doesn't function the way the kingdom of the world, the kingdoms of the world function. It's a kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. It's a kingdom that is completely backwards from the way of this world. For it's a kingdom where addition is done how? Through subtraction. Who would have thought that? And yet with God, that's exactly how it works. It's addition through subtraction. Lose your home, lose your family, lose your father, mother, brother, sisters in order to follow Jesus. And what do you get? That 100 fold and more. You get eternal life along with that. And it doesn't matter at what point in the day you start that labor. It doesn't matter if you're a 6 a.m. labor like the disciples or a 5 p.m. labor like the thief on the cross. What do you get? You still get the same generous one denarius, which is eternal life. There's not like different degrees of eternal life that we get where, you know, the 12 a.m. crew gets a better eternal life and then the other ones, they're like second-class citizens in this kingdom. No, everyone experiences the grace of God in an equal saving measure. And why? Because God's generosity is based upon great grace, not our greatness, his marvelous grace. And praise God it is, because if it wasn't, not a single one of us would receive even so much as a dime or even a penny, let alone a denarius. And so church, do you see how incredibly important the teaching of this parable is? It's a teaching, it's a truth that we quickly forget. It's so important because even as the redeemed children of God, like the disciples, we quickly forget that God's generosity is based not upon our good works, but upon his unmeasurable grace. And when we forget that, we start to measure our value by our service, which always results, if you think about it, in one of two things. The first thing that it might result in is us becoming prideful. We start looking around and think, oh, I'm the 6 a.m. worker. You know, I'm, I'm way better than these 5 p.m. guys. Look how much better I am of a Christian, of a servant, of a labor for Christ than they are. Look how much I've accomplished here for God compared to these 5 p.m. workers and their measly, pathetic one hour of work. Man, I'm better. That's how we start to think. Now, if we don't do that, what else might happen? The other thing might happen is we become self-loathing. We become depressed. Uh, maybe we start to look at our one hour of work. Maybe we were saved later in life or just didn't get on fire for the Lord until later in life, whatever. And we start to look at our less work compared to the other's 12 hours of work. And we think, yeah, I am pretty pathetic. Maybe I am not worthy of this denarius at all. 
Maybe we got saved later in life and start looking at all those lost years we could have spent serving God, but didn't. Maybe we start comparing our less flashy spiritual gifts with the flashier gifts like preaching or teaching or serving as a deacon or on the worship team. And we start to think, you know what? Maybe I'm actually just a spiritual loser because look at this. You know, I mean, man, there's so much better laborers than I am. But here's the thing. Who was it that decided to hire the 6 a.m. workers at 6 a.m. and not 5 p.m.? Was it the laborer's decision? No, it was the vineyard owner's. Who was it who decided to hire the 5 p.m. workers at 5 p.m. and not 6 a.m.? It was the vineyard owners. It was God's. And it was all based upon his grace, not our greatness. All of this is determined by his generosity according to his grace, not our greatness. And when we forget this, we will easily respond to the unfairness that we perceive around us with grumbling and not with gratitude, which is precisely what these 6 a.m. workers do, which leads us to our third point. The kingdom's fairness is not based upon generosity. It's based upon generosity, not greed. Let's get that right. Uh, Secondly, it's based upon grace, not greatness. And third, it's based upon gratitude, not grumbling. In verse 10, we find the 6 a.m. workers grumbling about the 5 p.m. workers getting the same generous wage they got. And just like that, their gratitude is gone, and they now want to be treated how? According to grace? No. They want to be treated in accordance to their works, not in accordance to the vineyard owner's generous grace. And let me ask you a question here, church. Is that a good idea? Is it a good idea to want God to stop treating us with grace and start treating us in accordance to our deeds? No, it's not. Because remember how this parable began. It began with the vineyard owner paying them way more than their labor was worth. It began with him paying them not in accordance to the greatness of their works, but in accordance to the generosity of his grace. And yet now, when they see that generous graciousness extended towards their fellow laborers, they get mad and start throwing the cucumbers back. And the reason they do that is because they forget that when it comes to what they deserve, do they even deserve cucumbers? No. Even the cucumbers are a remarkable act of grace. See, they forget full well that they don't even deserve them at all. What do they actually deserve? Not even being hired. They didn't deserve being hired. What do we actually deserve before God? We deserve hell. We deserve starving, separated from his goodness, separated from his grace and mercy and loving kindness. Because the truth is we don't deserve it even a little bit. In Luke chapter 15, we find the well-known story of the prodigal son who goes to his father and he says, I want my inheritance now. He basically wants to treat his dad as he's dead. Extremely disrespectful. And so the father remarkably gives him the inheritance. And what does the son do? He leaves, he goes out, he chases the world, the flesh, the devil, and he lives it up. He enjoys life as it was meant to be enjoyed, or so he thought, until he finally hits rock bottom. All of his friends leave him. And in fact, it gets so bad that this young Jewish boy is eating what the pigs eat, which was extremely lowly, extremely humiliating. And so when he hits rock bottom and he's there eating the pig slop, he gets a brilliant idea. He says, you know what I'm going to do? 
I'm going to go back to my father. I know he's a generous father. I know he's gracious. And I'm going to ask if I can just be one of his hired servants. Maybe he'll let me do that. For that is way better than eating this pig slop. And so he gathers himself together and goes home to see his father. And what does that passage tell us in Luke chapter 15? It tells us that when the father sees his son off in the distance returning home, does he sit there with his arms crossed and say, all right, let's see what he has to say. No. In fact, the father, it talks about how he picks up his undergarments, which was a humiliating thing, and he runs out after his son in the road and embraces him. And not only does he embrace him, but he restores his son to his full position as one of his beloved sons. Not just a servant, but a son. And then he goes ahead and he orders the rest of the servants to slay the fatted calf and throw this big, huge party to celebrate that what was lost has been found, that his son has returned home. But then what happens in that passage? The older brother sees all this and he's not happy about it. Not even a little bit happy about it. And remember, this was the brother who was first. He's the older brother, the first brother, the brother who never left home, who served the father faithfully and so much longer than this one-hour prodigal son. He was the 12-hour son. He did the full service for his father. And when he sees what his father is doing, he's furious. He's irate. And why? He's irate because suddenly the generous and gracious denarius that his father had given him is no longer enough. And this happens because he sees his second class, at least in his mind, his second class younger brother getting the very same gracious gift that he was given. And so like the 6 a.m. laborers, he complains about the long hours that he's faithfully labored and he demands to be treated in accordance to his works, not in accordance to the generous grace of his father. And instead of coming into the celebration, like the 6 a.m. workers here, he departs. He departs grumbling. He refuses to enter the celebration. He rejects his father's grace. And as Jesus talks about in this parable, he begrudges his generosity. And why? Because at the core of the older brother's heart is the same thing that's at the core of the 6 a.m. worker's heart, which is someone who is after the gifts, not the gift giver. Someone who is after what God has to offer, not after God. And boy, is that a massive difference. We're surrounded by people in this day and age that seek God's healing, but they don't want the healer. They want the blessings, not the blesser. But to do so is to miss the most beautiful and priceless thing of all, which is God himself. The very standard and definition of beauty. Christ himself is beauty. And that's what we actually, that's our true reward. Yes, we are going to be blessed in the kingdom, no questions about it. But when it comes to the baseline blessing, the most great denarius of them all, it's Jesus Christ. And let me ask you, are there degrees of what we get of Christ? No, there's not. We all receive Christ and his beauty and his magnificence in the kingdom. And we all receive it fully according to God's grace, not our works. Sometimes in life, when you're going through the heat of the day, it's very easy to question God's generosity and his goodness. It's easy to wonder why others seem to be getting grapes when we get cucumbers. And if we're not careful, we can start chucking them back in disgust because God's not fair. He's not treating us as we deserve. 
And so sometimes when we look around at others who haven't labored as long or as hard as we have, we can easily become envious and angered, believing that we deserve first-class seating instead of the coach that we were promised. You know the remarkable thing about that coach seating? What does it lead to? Something so much greater than first-class seating. It leads to eternal life, which comes by grace according to us all. And when we forget this, you know what happens? We start to view life through the lens of works, not through grace. But here's the thing. That's a lens that is going to crush you and destroy your life every single time. Not a single one of us deserves the generous, graciousness, the generous, gracious denarius that God has offered us. Not a one of us. For it is by his grace and his grace alone that we can enter into the vineyard at all and serve him. And as we do so, we can go forth knowing that he's going to reward us, not in accordance to our greatness, not when it comes to eternal life, but in accordance to his. And why? Because he labored. He labored the labor that we could never do. He earned the denarius that you and I could never learn in a million 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. lifetimes lived. He did it for us. And because he did so, we can one day come before him, whether we're a 6 a.m. laborer, a 3 p.m. laborer, or a 5 p.m. laborer, and experience that eternal life, which is very generous, all according to his gracious love, not our works. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what Christianity is about. God loved us when we were unlovely. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. He showers us with his grace. What parallels there are between these two parables. And so upon looking at both of these parables, the question remains for us. Which one are you? Are you a 6 a.m. worker grumbling about your cucumbers because you look over and you see the 5 p.m. workers getting more than you? Are you the older brother who gets upset when you see your younger brother being showered with God's generous grace, thinking that the same grace you've been given is no longer fair and you deserve more because of your works, not in accordance to God's grace? If so, stop responding to the generous grace of God with grumbling, but with gratitude. Remember this. If God was going to reward you based upon your works, based upon your labors, what would your payment be? It'd be hell. And that would be just. That would be right. And so no matter what you're going through, even if right now you're going through the cruel, hot, midday sun of life, and you look around and you see others seem to be relaxing in the shade, not having to deal with the trials you're going through, know that at the end of this short, even 12-hour labor that we're in awaits for us an eternity that pays us so much more than just a denarius. What does it pay us? All of God's riches. Ephesians 1 tells us what we get. All of the riches of Christ are ours. They're ours. They're in our name. That's the inheritance that's coming to us. And it comes to us not based upon our works, but based upon God's gracious work, which is manifested to us how? In the cross of Jesus. In the cross of Jesus, Christ lived the life. He labored the life that you and I should have labored. And he died the death that you and I deserved in order to give us eternal life beyond our wildest imaginations. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, he gives us a little picture here of what's in store 
for all of those who embrace the grace of God. He says, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. When we forget grace, it gets ugly fast, doesn't it? We start treating each other, not with grace, but according to their deeds. Forgetting that if God had done that to us, not a single one of us would have any hope of eternal life whatsoever. And so the parable of the vineyard owner teaches us that. It shows us that the first will be last and the last will be first. And all of this eternal reward comes by grace through faith in God's graciousness, which his loving kindness was given to us. How? Through his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this parable, which can be a little bit difficult, but once we see it, it's so simple. So Father, I just pray that as a church that we would be agents of grace, not agents of our labor, who go around begrudging your generosity, thinking that it's not fair what you've determined in your sovereign will to give out to all of your different laborers, knowing that in the end, all of us stand before you entirely by your grace and your mercy. Help us never to forget that. Help us not to return to law, for even as Christians, we can forget this and start walking in our works. Start thinking that our status before you is based upon our labor instead of the labor of Christ who died for us so that we might live. Father, I pray for this church. Help us to be a gospel church, a church that lives in the unmeasured grace that you give out to us. Help us never to forget it. Help us to live lives that are thankful. And even when we go through trials, to recognize that all things work together for good for those who love you, including the heat of the midday sun. We pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus, that you would come for your church to bring us with you, that we, uh, we know that when that happens, we will never be separate from you anymore, but we will be with you and see you as you are, and we will be forever changed as we live in your grace and generosity for all of eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.